a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Welcome, good people, to episode eight of the Howie Games Artist Series, part A, featuring a man who, in many ways, revolutionised independent travel globally, Tony Wheeler. This is a really cool story. Tony and his then girlfriend, now wife Maureen, set off on a trip from London to Australia way back in 1972. And little did they know this adventure would launch the Lonely Planet Guide Travel Book Series, which is a publishing juggernaut. The guides have helped literally millions of people spread their wings and see the world. So with Australia and the world finally opening up again after COVID, there is no better time to have an episode based around travel, adventure and the thrill the thrill of not knowing what's around the next bend, plus some weird sporting events and how to build a mega business, and I mean mega business, with less than 20 bucks to your name. This is an episode really close to my heart because for me, a backpack, a surfboard and a lonely planet have always been a really big part of my life. Firstly, solo, then with my girlfriend, now wonderfully, wonderfully cool wife, Erica, then with our kids. Lonely Planet has had the answers for me when I've needed them most. For example, what is the best bus to catch to get from Rurinabaki in the Bolivian jungle to the capital La Paz? Lonely Planet will tell you. Which donkey merchant, seriously, which donkey merchant will sort you out for a cheap ride into the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and not leave you stranded? When you want to get back to your hostel, Lonely Planet's got the answers. Where to hire a board and a weddie, a really thick weddie too, by the way, if you ever go there in Thurzo, on the coast of Scotland, Lonely Planet can tell you, and one that still sticks with me today, who to go parachuting with in Swakopmund, Namibia, and even more importantly, who not to go parachuting with in Swakopmund, Namibia. Lesson learned there. This is the love that Lonely Planet provides. Here's to an adventurous life on the road less travelled with Tony Wheeler. Book your tickets now. Welcome to the Howie Games, the artist series, a man that could be described I guess as an author, although he will tell us how he will describe himself shortly, he's been a massive part of my life since I was a 20-year-old and left Australia and have used his books ever since, the Lonely Planet series, and he's now on to bigger and better things. His name is Tony Wheeler. He joins us on the show. Tony, we'll get to the technological side of life in a minute, but it is beautiful to see your smiling face there in London. It is. It is beautiful to be here in London. I mean, I've been <laughs> away for about a month now and you guys have been in lockdown the whole time. I escaped we just, have. As it, just as it kicked in. Yeah, and we, we won't go into the political situation, the COVID situation, but it'd be fair to say, Tone, trying to fire this up, we had a few technical hitches, you had a couple of internet problems, and somehow you ended up with your camera facing the wrong way, which was an issue. It was, yeah. Now, this is, this is technology, you know, which it works wonderfully when it works. And then it stops. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we get into the, your story, sport. We always connect these through sport. And I'd love to ask you about some of the sports you have seen around the world on your travels. But as a young man that grew up all over the place, and we'll get to that, did you play sport? And if so, what type of sport, Tony? No, you know, I... I did. I, actually, I was a runner. I used to run on the, the cross-country running team for my school, and I've I've only ever run one marathon. I, I did it once, and I thought this is too tedious. I never want to run another one. But you know, I, I've run, and I still cycle a lot. I've my my bicycle gets gets out bicycles get out fairly regularly. Um, but uh, you know, I've never I've I've been living in Melbourne for a long time. 
And you always say with Melbourne, you've got to have a school and a footy team. And I'm, yes. I, I used to live really close to the MCG. And um, when the siren went off for the last quarter, you could get into the MCG free in the last quarter. Yes. So I, yes. I caught the last quarter of a lot of games. But I don't think I ever paid for any of them at all. <laughs> Even better, a man on a shoestring budget. I like it. Where was your marathon? I, I'm interested. Where uh, was your I marathon? Did, I did the Melbourne Marathon. Well done. How, do, you, do you remember how long it took you and was it difficult? Did you find it hard or did you just cruise through? Oh, of course through? I found it hard. <laughs> I think even the guy, <laughs> I mean, they, they say, you know, marathon winners, it's just as much pain if you do it in two hours or four hours or six hours. I did it more than three, less than four. But, um, no, I wasn't proud of my time. I, I thought I was going to be, a bit, be rather faster and I thought afterwards, nah, done that, don't want to do it again. In many ways, this podcast is me to get you on so I can hear some of your travel stories because it's it's a, it's a an enormous part of my life and now my young family's life. But I love it whether you're in Costa Rica and you see a game of baseball on the side of the road or Papua New Guinea and you see the blokes surfing. I love, as a sports commentator, to see various sporting events. You must have seen some interesting sporting events in your time around the globe, Tone. Yeah, well, you know, i tell you the two I think of immediately – you know, a lot of countries, they have a sport, which is, is you know, the thing they do. And I was in Bhutan, and Bhutan, the sport is archery. Right. You know, I, I guess when the archery Olympics are on, you know, they may not have a gold medal contender in there, but they would be totally focused on it. Um, you, you see Bhutanese coming back to Bhutan from overseas, and they're not carrying their duty-free booze or duty-free uh, electronic equipment, <laughs> they're carrying carbon fibre bows. You know, they, it's, it's, you know, it's, and um, watching a Bhutanese archery contest is really, really good because they, you know, they rubbish the opposing team and, you know, they, they, they've taken lessons from the Australian cricket team. You know, that, that's, so they're sledging. They're, they're oh, sledging. They sledge, and is absolutely, there a, yeah. And is there a crowd? Is it like there's, is, there's it a, a is it a golf and, crowd or a football crowd? Um, well, you know, it's, it's a small country, so, you know, you're not getting tens of thousands. Although, um, oh, we can get we can get going on the World Cup in Bhutan once. A friend, uh, somebody I knew was involved with putting on many years ago, World Cup, they, they decided that Bhutan wasn't in the, the World Cup, but they would put on the two worst teams in the world, <laughs> which turned out to be Bhutan and um, some Caribbean island. In a game of football. Good morning, everyone. Here's Rose and Family Radio bringing you the latest news in sports. Well, dear folks, today the world will literally come to a halt. More than a billion people, you heard it right, more than a billion people are expected to stay home today and to sit in front of their television sets to watch the World Cup final in Japan. But as you might have heard, there's another final taking place in Asia, which will be watched by just a few thousand people. This game will be between the two lowest-ranked football countries in the world. So uh, if you look at the far bottom of, uh, of this list, you find uh, Bhutan and Montserrat. And they, yeah, they put yeah. it on at the same time as the, um, the, you know, the Brazil versus Germany or whatever it was. <laughs> they were putting on an alternative World Cup. And a, a friend of mine went to Bhutan to see it. You know, so there was... <laughs> and the... Um, I, the Bhutanese, the Bhutanese won, but the West Indians had a good time there. You know, right. was, um, so so the Bhutanese were the the second worst team in the world then. Yeah, yeah, and they um, 
they they did it. They did it. There was a great um, little little um, one-hour documentary made on it, and they interviewed right. monks. And the head monk said, "You know, we we quite like to watch football, but um, the Buddha isn't really concerned who wins. It's all. <laughs> it was great. It was a great. It was a great sporting event. Uh, because of this sports event, every Bhutanese will now know where Montserrat is, and they will, I'm sure." have love and respect and understanding for that country irrespective of whether we win or lose and the other place i've been where there is a mm. national sport where people are totally obsessed with it um is in french polynesia where um outrigger canoe racing ah. six persons they have women's teams as well as men's teams um and they have an annual big race which goes from island to island our country is uh, made for this sport there's no other race like Hawakinui. Paddling here is like uh, football in your country, I think, huh? or soccer in Europe. So it's sort of 50 kilometers, you know, across the ocean to the next next island. And I, I was in I was on Bora Bora when the um, the race had finished there. You know, they came. They you could sort of see them out on the ocean. They came round the outside of the atoll and through the entrance and across the lagoon. You could have gone water skiing behind these guys. You know, they, <laughs> well, they were that fast. Yeah, they were terrific. You know, they surged across the... And, you know, they're big guys, you know. They'd be rugby players if they were other parts of the Pacific. But, yeah, yeah that was definitely worth seeing, you know. And there was major enthusiasm. And there you go. I, I love the, the sport and the culture because it's not just the sport. You know, if, if you're watching... Whatever it be, um, I mentioned you know baseball in 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 uh, Panama or in Cuba or football in Jamaica. There's 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 all the rituals that come with it as well. Not just what people are wearing, but what they're eating in the crowd and how they react and whether it's you know a, a Bolivian crowd where they go off their chops or whether it's a, a European crowd where it's very reserved. I think often. As a first-time viewer to a new sporting event in a new country, it's often the crowd that gets me as much oh, yeah, yeah. as it is the event itself. Yeah. Well, I, when I was a, a child, I, my father was working in the States and um, I ended up going to a lot of baseball and American football games. This is a long, long time ago. But because I had that little sort of, you know, segment of, you know, how kids, they know every player and so on. So I, mm. I, know, I can sort of reel off the names of... Um, I remember when Jim Gentile was the um, the quarterback for the Baltimore um, Colts. Um, I remember when Al Al Kaline was a you know great player for the Detroit Tigers. And, you know, and, and Amer- Americans who are of extreme age like me, they, oh, how do you know that? You know, it's oh, I remember Al Kaline <laughs> and a few well, others. Sport sport connects, doesn't sport connect yeah, people? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay, so we, we, we've had a bit of a chat about sport, but this ostensibly is not really about sport. Doing a little bit of reading tone, can you just explain to me your background? Because often people with a passion for travel, as you and, and your, your wonderful wife Maureen have obviously had and formed a business on it, they often have quite itinerant lives as young people. And, and reading about you it seemed due to your family that you spent a lot of time in a lot of different places as a young person. Yeah, it's true. And I, my father was with um, BOAC, which later on became British Airways. And 
You know, he, he was an RAF pilot in the in the World War Two, but was he? Yeah, not not flying Spitfires or um, or Lancasters. He was a tra- pilot trainer, so he flew um, ah. those old Tiger Moth um, biplanes, and later on Harvards. But um, huh. his his entire life, you know, was he wasn't a pilot with British Airways. He was um, Grand Staff, but. Um, as a result, I grew up in different countries. Um, first of all, in Pakistan. I lived in Pakistan for um, the five, first five years of my life. And Do you um, have any memories of that? At what, what year are we talking now? Yeah, amazingly, you know, uh, I, I, was only, I know when I left, you know, I was only five years old. Um, and yet I've got really clear memories of um, Karachi. Huh. And um, I went back there many years later and I... I I had the address of the we had an apartment in this big old house and I had the address of the apartment and I walked by and I recognized it instantly you know I Did go, you? oh yeah there's I could even sort of pick out which our window was and where the vulture <laughs> used to sit on top of the flagpole and things So what what year were you born How, at what stage were you living in in Pakistan It's just it shows how extremely old I am I was right after World no. War 2 46 I was born. So what I'm, a fascinating place it would have been. I, well, it was, yeah. And I've been back. I've been back to Pakistan a surprising number of times, and um, you know, for a, a wide assortment of reasons. And um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating country. It's just the shame about the governments. It's been saddled yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Often so where did you go after Pakistan? So as a five-year-old, you leave Pakistan. Yeah, and then I was I was back in England for just a year or two. I lived with my grandparents for a year because there wasn't a school to go to in Pakistan. So, um, huh. so I said, so, and then we went to the Bahamas, and we lived in the Bahamas um, for a couple of years. Karachi in the Bahamas, she said. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was sort of after. I think it was you know a hardship posting, and then right. comfort. And um, and you know this is sport again. My um, they, they there were two um, local cricket teams who played every Sunday. And it was the um, the Nassau Police versus it was Nassau in the Bahamas versus the, the it was the RAF team and the RAF team was various retired RAF people or airline people and my father was on the um, RAF team so I used to go and watch him play cricket <laughs> every <laughs> every Saturday morning <laughs> and you know cricket is taken fairly seriously in the Caribbean. My word it is. Yeah, so that was, you know, good sporting experience. And so and then where? Well then I was in um in England for a couple of years. Um and then I went when I was ten to America and I lived in America until really at the end of high school. So I did all my high school years in America. So then, you know, it was baseball and American football and basketball were the sports. Huh. And I never really I went along to school, followed the school team. I had a couple of friends who were good basketball players and you know, I went, went to all their basketball games. And I, as I said, with my father, I went to a lot of um, baseball. And the two the two cities I lived in in, in in the States, first of all, I lived in Detroit. You know, and now you say, Detroit, oh, God. Um, but, mm. you know, Back in that era, Detroit was fine. That was the era with American cars with big tail fins. And, um, you know, Detroit is before Tamla Motown even, but, you know, Detroit was a pretty hot place to live. It was it was great in those days. Before we go too much further, uh, how often do you hear this when someone understands 
who you are and what you've done, which is what I'm about to say to you, that as a 20-year-old university student that had never left Australia, that wanted to see the world, bought A Lonely Planet from the bookshop for South America, and it became such a big part of my life, Tony, traveling, using your guidebooks at first religiously and then on and off when I was trying to find my own path as well. And now that has progressed through to traveling with my wife and now with my young children who are nine and 11, who we've been very privileged to take them around the world. And I get no more joy than them sitting in the back of a bus in uh, Guatemala reading a Lonely Planet book and telling me about the national currency or the geography or where they're going. So it's it sounds ridiculous, but it's a massive thank you from me to what you and your wife did because it has opened up so many things in my world. How often do you hear that story? I I don't know if it's a story you get over or it still fills you with joy, but you must hear it a lot. Oh, yeah, I hear it a lot. You know, I, one of the things I say these days is that when, when we first started Lonely Planet, which was a long time ago, you know, we had the first few years, people would say, well, what do you do? And you'd explain and, you know, and it, it took some explanation, the idea that you went traveling to these places and you brought back information and you, you made it into a guidebook, you know, and here's, a, I, I've got, I can see them sitting on the shelves here. Um, beside me, um, you know, and then, then you know, what, five, ten years down the line, everybody you met was using them, you know, because we yeah. were doing very much books. You know, we were in our early 20s and we were doing books for people in their early 20s and everyone was using them. You didn't have to explain it at all. You know, they were pleased to meet you and so on. And I, I, I sort of, in a way, joke, now, now I meet people and you sort of say, and they say, oh, yes, Lonely Planet. I remember my parents used to use those. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the generations have moved on. It's, um, I mean, we're, we're not at the cutting edge anymore. No, well, we're not. I mean, I, I sold out of it 10 years ago. Yes. But, um, you know, the, the cutting edge is, is, you know, something on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or something. Yeah, but there's still something about the, yeah. the paper and the looking and, and putting it in your bag. I, I know if, I, if I'm visiting someone's house, if someone visited my house, they would see the bookshelf and they see the Lonely Planets, I know when I visit someone's house and I see those books there and the colour and first thing I want to do is leaf through them, but you feel a connection with that person because yeah. there's a fair chance they've had some experiences like you have on a bus or with a backpack or on a train or hitchhiking or seeing a new language or, or, or reading about a new place. I think it it's a real connection for people, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember quite a few years ago there was a one of the a giveaway newspaper in San Francisco and it had a, you know, now these days people swiping left and swiping right, but, you know, those sort of um, small ads and people would be sometimes advertised on it, what sort of person are you? I'm a lonely planet sort of person. You know, there yeah. was a yeah. there was a context to it. Yeah, you know, and it's a bit of shorthand, you know, I, I like travel, I like to do it myself, I don't want to go on a cruise ship, I, I want to go out and meet people. So, yeah, there was a... There was a context to it. And that's, you know, I'm pleased about it. You know, and, you know what do you say about, you know, your, your kids looking at the book and telling you about the currency? And, you know, that, that's part of I me mean, and our kids did the same. We dragged our kids everywhere. Why yeah. can't we go down to, you know, Sorrento or Portsea for a holiday? Why do we have to go to Guatemala? <laughs> <laughs> because you can climb Akatenango and have your mind blown yeah. as opposed to what you can do in, in Sorrento. Yeah, but, exactly. Okay, so... 
how how does it start? T- tell me firstly how you meet your wife and business partner, Maureen. How did we meet? I, I was sitting. I just come. I just moved to London a long time ago, to um, not to go to university, to go back to university. I'd I'd graduated and worked for a bit, and then went back for a second go. And um, I'd just only been in London a week, and I, I went out for a walk and sat in this park on a sunny October day, which is unusual in <laughs> London yes. in October, and um, sat there reading reading a car magazine. God, how! And um, this this woman walking by saw this the one park bench with some sun on it and decided to sit at the other end of the park bench. And twelve months to the day later, we got married. Wow! Yeah. What was your opening gambit tone? What, oh, what did you God, leave you know, with? Was, I, I'm embarrassed to say I actually wrote it down, but um, it was something on the lines of this being a good place in London to read on a Wednesday afternoon. Okay. Or, Oh, that's that's nice. That's nice. And um, yeah, yeah, it was. She she was reading. She was reading either Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, one or the other. Okay. Back to Tony in a jiffy. Next up on the Artist Series, a conversation that I really, really enjoyed. It features a man that was oh so close to playing rugby sevens for Australia, a man that dreamed of running the eight hundred metres at the Commonwealth Games, and he didn't pick up a guitar for the first time until he was 22 years of age. His name is Pete Murray. He is one of Australia's most loved singer-songwriters and has a stack of platinum records on his shelf. But Pete nearly, nearly didn't get to his very first gig. I had no idea. I just rocked up and said, who's the owner? And so (laughs) Jan Dooley uh, was, Jan and Tom Dooley owned it. Jan sadly's passed away now, but she was great. She's like, "Uh, um, can I play a few songs for you and just, if you if you like me, I'm just wondering if I can get a gig. And she was great. Um, she said, yeah, I'm about to have lunch, so why don't you sit up there, play a few songs, and um, I'll have a listen and I'll kind of let you know if, if you, you know, if, if you got the gig. So I'm like, yeah, sure. So I'm sitting down. I, I played about three songs. At, at the end of the third song, she came up and said, you're great. I love you. Fantastic. Can you do – and this was on um, Monday. She said, uh, can you start Friday? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, yeah, sure. I try to be confident. You know, yeah, sure, I can do that. You know, and she said, "All right, see you Friday. You're gonna do like uh, four, four forty-five minute sets." I'm thinking, "Holy, it's shit. a lot of songs. It's a lot of songs. I'm gonna have to repeat do some different versions of certain you know songs." <laughs> so I was, I was panicking all week, and I was trying to learn as many songs as I could. Had to go and get a PA from somewhere, and I was so nervous. When driving in Friday night for this gig, I was excited, but I was. Just petrified. And um, I got halfway there and I just stopped the car, the Valiant, the, the car key ghost, stopped it, and I just said, I can't do it. And I turned around and started driving home. I was that nervous. And I went, hang on, stop, pulled over again. I said, you've got to do this. You've just got to get this out of the way. So I went in, did the did the gig, and most people at that bar are there to drink and chat. Yep. You know, So they're not sort of focusing too much on what you're doing, but... You know, still to get through that that four sets of forty five minutes was um, was the most terrifying moment for me. You know, I think in my musical career. That's the laid back, combi driving legend. That is Pete Murray up next Tuesday on the Artist Series. Very cool episode. Let's get back to Tony. So, just back to you said you had a, another job. It's a it's a big thing 
in any generation, I reckon, Tony, that people that want to explore the world have this wanderlust, for want of a better term, but they also are generally connected through their school or their parenting to to life and a career and getting ahead in the world. And sometimes those things are hard to, to juggle. So what were you doing as a job and what made you move away from that? Was it the pull of the world or, yeah, or um, not? I, I, you know, I, obviously when, I, when you're at school or at university or whatever, you have lots of jobs, you know, you do any anything that legally you can do to make some money. Um, so I, I'd, I'd done all sorts of things before I got my first real job. But I've, I, university, I did engineering. I was a mechanical engineer. Okay. And I, when I left university, I, I worked for two years in the car industry in Britain. Um, right. Kind of interesting time because it was when the, the British car industry was basically crashing and burning. You know, they were, they were going bankrupt. You know, all, all sorts of mm. names of car makers at that time no longer exist. Um, so I was sort of part of that um, for two years. And at the end of that two years, I decided I was never going to be a great engineer. Um, but I, but I did like engineering. So I decided to, um, go back to university and study business. And then I thought I can right. sort of, I can be in the sort of engineering side, but not as an, as an engineer. So I was not going to be a crash shot engineer. And then I, I did, I went to university, did a second degree and then started traveling. And that took me off on a whole other tangent. But I'll say, you know, one thing about while I was studying engineering at university, I also, um, in the spare, spare time, worked on the university newspaper. So I learned how to do all the things you do in journalism and book paper production and print, So, which turned out later on to be very, very useful at Lonely Planet. So all the engineering was this sort of a peripheral thing. It was the... Um, you know, evening and weekend work that really, really proved useful. And so you and Maureen felt the, like, did you go, what was your trip? What was your plan? Were you just sort of heading off? And what yeah, were you doing? I mean, very much. Um, you know, we decided we would do, it was called the Overland Trip. Later on, it was called the Hippie Trail. Great name. <laughs> um, and so we we decided we would do that. And we, we bought an old car. And the idea of this this car was so old, we'd just drive it till it broke down and see how far it got us, got us to Afghanistan. So what year was this? What year did you leave London on this trip? 72. 72. And what was the car? Uh, the car was an old Mini. Um, right. Yeah, and, you know, I love this. Yeah, it got us all the way to, you know, many years later when, you know, BMW owned Mini now, when they were launching the Mini in China, um, they contacted me and they said, um, a lot of Chinese young people know Lonely Planet. Now, Lonely Planet's a big name in China. Mm. Um, and we know that you drove to Afghanistan in a mini 40 years, whatever it was ago. Will you come to China to launch the mini? <laughs> what do you say? So, you know, well, why not? They flew BMW, flew me to China, and I was there to wow. <laughs> help launch the mini countryman in China. So on this trip that got to Afghanistan, and I'm sure continued from there in 1972, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear people's travel stories. It, it, it fills me with joy. What was the hardest border to cross <laughs> in your Mini? Oh, in the Mini, probably, oh, 
they were all, they all had a little bit of paperwork and documentation and so on. But, you know, leaving Afghanistan, you know, you go up over the Khyber Pass and, you know, that you dip down to Peshawar on a, on, um, on a bus. And we, we met a, a woman on the bus, an English journalist and got talking to her. And, you know, and we, we ended up spending the next month with her, um, sharing <laughs> rooms and things. And, um, and a couple of years later, by, by which time we'd started Lonely Planet, and we decided we should publish a guidebook in on Hong Kong. And we said, oh, yeah, that woman we um, we met on the bus over the Khyber Pass, she was a journalist and she was going to live in Hong Kong. And <laughs> we tracked her down, and sure enough, she was a journalist, and she was also making money on the side dubbing... Um, dubbing Chinese movies into English. <laughs> she, and she wrote our first Hong Kong guide. You know, we really, okay. looking back, it was, a, it was one of those blessed trips, you know, where everything sort of works. Um, the, the, probably the hardest uh, bit of travel in it was um, getting to Australia because we, we carried on from having, we sold the mini in Afghanistan. You know, and <laughs> after that, then it was... Um, buses and trains and hitchhiking. Maureen and I hitchhiked from Bangkok to Singapore. Um, Did you really? Yeah, you could do that in those days. <laughs> and we, uh, we, went to, we had to, picked up some great rides. You know, even that was fantastic. We met Thai students and a, a Malaysian engineer and this and that and great time. Um, but then finally in, um, in Bali, by which time, and Bali in 72 was not the Bali, you know, there were about no. three hotels and four restaurants instead of 300 restaurants and mm. 400 hotels sort of thing. Um, but we we um, got a ride on with some New Zealander, well, one New Zealander, the rest of his crew were all over the place, but um, a New Zealand yacht. And um, we hitched a ride on this yacht and we sailed down to Australia and we landed in WA about a thousand clicks north of um, north of Perth. So you you arrive in Australia. Yeah. Tell me the shape and, and the idea of the first guide book, and what was it? Well, we you know we we arrived in Exmouth. We hitchhiked down to Perth. We hung around in Perth for a week, um, and then we hitchhiked again, and we got to Sydney. Um, and I remember we the last ride into Sydney. We got dropped off in the middle of Sydney. And uh, Maureen said to me, well, here we are, you know, we, we said we'd get from London to Sydney in six months and we'd try and arrive in one piece, which we had done, and we wouldn't have much money. You did in six months? To six months, yeah. Well, that's good going. Yeah, it was a bit of a race, you know. <laughs> now, I'd love to do it again and have two years on it. That would be yes. a better time spent. Anyway, um here we are in Sydney. How much money have we got left? And I put <laughs> put my hand in my pocket, and I, we had twenty seven cents. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I had a camera. <laughs> I went up to the we walked up to the cross, and um, <laughs> we got. Um, before we got to the cross, we 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 went to a loan shop and got twenty five dollars for my camera. Um, but we, the the Sydney Morning Herald in those days was five cents. And um, a, f- a phone call was also five cents. Here's <laughs> inflation for you. <laughs> and um, we got the Sydney Morning Herald and we found a room for $16 a week and we made a five-cent phone call and said, we'll come along and put a 16 first week's rent down. 
<laughs> and then got 25 bucks for my camera, so we still had $9. <laughs> but no camera. No camera. I got it back a week later because we, within a week we both had jobs and um, within two weeks wow. we had a car. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I, I love, like I said, I'll, I'll say this to you so many times. I love hearing stories like this. So you've you've sold your camera, you've 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 got your accommodation, you've got a job. Who's the first one to say, "Hey, these memories we have, we should put them on paper"? And was it to help other people, or what was the plan, Tone? Yeah, that's very much it. And it, it wasn't for a few months, but um, a few months down the line, we both had nine to five jobs, and um, we were going to spend a year in Sydney and save enough money to travel another year. So we were living on one salary and saving the other. And um, But everybody you met, they said, oh, where did you go? How did you do that? Oh, what did that cost? Oh, you know, I didn't know you could cross India, cross Afghanistan. You know, and we started writing notes for people. And after a while, we thought, we can make a book out of this. Um, and we did. And that was the first Lonely Planet guidebook. And what was it called? It was called Across Asia on the Cheap. Um, and what did it look like? Describe to me the physical nature of it. Um, oh, have you got it? Well, I haven't. I've, but um, when it was um, when it was thirty years old, they they just reprinted it as um, a, right as a giveaway um, bit of publicity. Huh. Ninety six pages, all of Asia. You know, and it was it was really amateur because we hadn't set out thinking we were going to write a guidebook. So um, no, and so what, what? What was the? Obviously, it becomes a very stylized thing you do. But did that have? Um, you know, you can get this bus from here and maybe check out this hotel and make sure you go and see this temple. Was it that detailed? Or pretty much like that. But you know, much much the information was much skinnier than it soon became yep. because it was just. You know what what we'd done and what our notes were, and you know what I'd remembered. So it wasn't like a real guidebook. Now that first book was an accident. We hadn't set out to do a book, but you know it was the best guidebook to crossing Asia because there was no other guidebook. Nobody no, had done no, one. No, no, no. So what did you do with it? Like. Did you you wrote it and got it printed and well we did it we did it all ourselves we um did we, you? we found a guy in um in where where was he I forget where he was in Sydney but anyway he um he had a printing press in the basement of the place he lived and um huh. he just printed off one thousand five hundred copies for us and I took a day off work and went around Sydney bookshops and sold them and you know before I before we knew it we'd sold them all and had to print more of them but then thought hell this is good we could and you know so then we 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 were about to leave Sydney anyway because we the plan had been save enough money to travel for another year so we were about to leave and we were going to travel back to London but instead we decided no we'll just we'll just go around Southeast Asia and we'll do a guidebook to Southeast Asia and that was the real start of the first book was an accident, but the second book was more serious. So you went on a trip with that idea in your head. So you gathered more details, you had more information, yeah, yeah. etc. As you went, yeah, yeah. So the second book was just you know just we'd we'd learnt a little bit about <laughs> producing guidebooks and selling them. Then so the second book was much more serious, 
Um, and we traveled, we traveled Southeast Asia. I always say we left Sydney and after 12 months, we got as far as Singapore. Um, and, you know, <laughs> so that was a better, better speed of travel. Um, you know, and we, we, we spent a year traveling and then we spent a while, um, putting that second book together, which we did the whole thing in a hotel room in Singapore, a sort of $2 a night hotel room. But, um, I've stayed in plenty of those. In those I've days, in plenty there were, of those. yeah, yeah. Um, we spent three months in that hotel room putting the book together. And at the end of that, we thought, well, we were on our way back to London and we thought, oh, I don't know. You know, we, we've, the, the business was the first book that, that, um, cross Asia one was only ever sold in, in Australia and New Zealand. It didn't get, it wasn't sold anywhere else in the world. Um, huh. but, but the next one we, we intended to sell everywhere and we did from the start. Um, but we thought, well, we've started the business in Australia. Why don't we, why don't we go back to Australia and have another year in Australia? And we thought, well, we lived in Sydney for a year. Let's try living in Melbourne for a year. And been in Melbourne ever since. So Melbourne wasn't planned. Melbourne was also an accident. So who comes up with the name? When does the guidebook become The Lonely Planet? Right at the beginning, that very first book we, we did. Um, you know, we'd, um, we'd, Got the book finished. We, you know, all we we had a name for it, across Asia on the cheap. All we needed was um, a name for the the business, a name that people could write the checks out to. And we we'd just seen a movie, a rock and roll band on the road movie called Mad Dogs and Englishmen, and it was Joe Cocker and assorted other people traveling around. Um, Leon Russell was the main, part, but a, but a bunch of you know rockers traveling around America in the late sixties. Great movie. You know, you can still get it and you can still buy the I'll check it out. Yeah. It's got some great music. There's some really good music on it, but one of the songs that um, Joe Cocker sings was called space captain. And the opening line on the song is once while traveling across the sky, this lonely planet caught my eye. And um, I said to Maureen, that sounds pretty good. Lonely Planet. Why don't we call it Lonely Planet? And she said, great idea, except actually he doesn't sing Lonely Planet. He sings Lovely Planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was a mistake. Once while traveling across the sky The, the company, the name has always been a mistake. It should have been, should have been Lovely Planet. There you go. That's the end of Tony Wheeler Part A. More adventure round the bend in Part B. Listener.